Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young. We'll be digging through conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, pianist from St. Louis, Lawrence Fields. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Lawrence Fields with us. Sir, thank you for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. So could you give a short intro about yourself and then we'll get into it? Yeah, so um, I'm a pianist and keyboardist. Um, I'm from St. Louis. I am now living in New York. And uh, I just released my debut album, To the Surface. And uh, yeah, that's me. (laughs) Okay. Now... First of all, you played with a lot of people that I interviewed. So, of course, this is a great thing for me. I get to catch up to see what everyone else is doing. But (laughs) the first thing I need to ask is, this is an independent album, right? It is. So, it's on a label um, in in Germany called Rhythm and Flow Records. And it's essentially um, a new formation or a sort of reboot almost. Um, of a label called Minor Music, which is the label that released Jerry Allen's uh, first four records, uh, including the Printmakers and a few others. And uh, that label had a number of sort of storied musicians on it. Um, Pee Wee Ellis and, and Maceo and Fred Wesley and people like that. Um, so it was kind of like an, an open-minded label that respected, you know, very deep, african-american musical tradition and so um co-founder of or the founder of that label has started a new label uh, with a new co-founder um and so that is the label that i'm releasing this record on and it's the first uh release for the new label and how did they get in contact with you or find out about you or you found out about them yeah, I actually met the co-founder, Stefan, at a concert. I was playing in Vienna at Porgy and Bess with a group called Sound Prince with Joe Lovano and Dave Douglas. And um, yeah, he was there. He came over to talk after the show. And um, after I met him and talked to him and learned about, you know, who he was working with in the past and his vision, you know, we kind of started to, to ping pong back and forth and messages and calls and things like that and i started to realize that you know it's a unique individual who is very open-minded and has a good sense of how to support good music and so the more that we talked uh, the more interested i became and we ended up uh yeah shaking hands and and uh signing a deal to, to put the record out okay and where did you record this because I really don't have much info on this, on like the, all the other projects I normally get. So did you record this in the States? Did you record this in Germany? Yeah, it's recorded uh, in New York okay. at a, a place called Big Orange Sheep, uh, which was, it was a really great experience. I actually was going to record it at another studio uh, that I won't name, but <laughs> the studio, there, just to back up a bit, there were, it was a long road to getting this recorded. So originally when I was gearing up 
to record, uh, first the pandemic hit, so everything shut down. Uh, then I was, you know, in the pandemic at home working on things for the record, and uh, we started to get geared up to do it again. And then um, there was there was a COVID situation where people got sick, and then we couldn't do the record. And so then I got geared up to do it again. And then uh, the studio actually gave away the recording date to someone else. Uh, they, they sent me an email and said, hey, uh, there's someone who's locking the studio out for a week. And basically, we can't afford not to take it. Um, wow. You know, can we move your, your date to this other date? And, you know, wait, wait, takes- wait, I just because that happened to me before. Was this studio in Midtown? <laughs> the studio is not in Midtown. OK, OK, OK. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, right? Yes, so, I know. That's why I was asking. Cause, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I had a moment where I had to really kind of soul search and make some serious decisions. And it was like, okay, I need to coordinate three people's schedules. My schedule, Corey Fonville's schedule, and Yasushi Nakamura's schedule. You know, like, what do I do? Do I do this with someone else or do I hold off until the three of us can make it? And so, you know, after that, I took a step back and I said, I feel like this is not going to be the same without these guys. And so we waited until we could link up again. And I ended up moving it to Big Iron Sheep and it ended up being the best decision ever because those guys were amazing. And the sound that they got, um, I was really, really happy with. Yeah, I'm glad you did that too. Yoshushi's one of my favorite jazz bass players in the circuit right now. And he's practically everywhere right now. So that is true. <laughs> How did you meet him, actually? You know what? Yasushi, Yasushi was on my first, the first gigs that I ever played in New York. Um, I was in Boston still going to Berkeley, and I was starting to take the bus up to New York to come sometimes to hang out, but sometimes to play gigs. So, you know, I would, uh, there are these two buses, Fongwa and Lucky Star. <laughs> it was yeah, like, you did the cheaper ones. <laughs> yeah, I think it was, it may have been, it started like $5. Yeah. Maybe 10 or $15, like by that point. But yeah, so I would take the bus up to New York. And um, the first person who ever hired me to play in New York was a, a drummer, Rodney Green. And Rodney really kind of looked out for me when I didn't know much about New York, but I was interested in and coming and being part of the scene. And uh, yeah, so on some of the first gigs that I had with Rodney, um, Yasushi was on them. And that is how I met Yasushi. And he's been a, just an amazing friend and bandmate ever since. Okay. Uh, did he write the track, New Season Blues? Um, You know what? I wrote New Season Blues, but I did feature him on, okay. on the track uh, because Yasushi took a solo on the track and Yasushi has a way of just bringing so much energy to everything that he does, you know? And so, um, I wanted to make sure, although it, it is my record, I wanted to make sure that I'm also featuring Yasushi's contribution and, and Corey's as well, since they were so critical to the record. And so, uh, yeah, I decided to, to feature his name on that track as a tribute to him. Okay. And I assume the same thing with To The Surface. You just, you were just featuring Corey on that, correct? Absolutely. In fact, mm-hmm. that was a, a song that I wrote with Corey's drumming in mind. <laughs> so, you know, as I was, was coming up with it, I was hearing the types of things that Corey plays um, in my head because Corey has a way of synthesizing 
influences from all the stuff that I love, right? It's not just jazz, but it's also a lot of like 70s music. Um, and even a little bit before that, but that era going from Motown into like 70s funk and fusion and things like that, all of that's in his playing. He has hip hop in his playing, he has R&B in his playing. You know, we all listen to, you know, like a lot of jazz greats and stuff like that, but we also came up listening to like GRP records and the Yellow Jackets and all that stuff. And so all the things that Corey loves come out in his playing. And that's why a lot of times when I'm playing with them, um, I hear things that only have his sound on them. And that was absolutely one of them. So I wanted to to give him credit for that as well. Okay. And how did you meet him too? I met Corey playing with Nicholas Payton. We, uh, we did a gig in Florida. I can't remember exactly where, maybe Fort Lauderdale or something like that. Uh, but anyway, yeah, when I was playing with Nicholas Payton, um, he had kind of a core rhythm section at the start. But uh, he had gone through a period. I don't know if guys were were busy or if he just wanted to explore and try different things and find his fit. But basically, um, originally it was Marcus Gilmore and Vicente Archer. And then there was a period where um, it was kind of amazing. It was like on every gig, there would be a different drummer or bassist. And it was just so much fun. You know, I got to play with a lot of people who I had been admiring from the afar and met in passing. Um, but over the span of, you know, a couple years, it was like um, Kareem Riggins and Bob Hurst. That was where I met uh, Nate Smith, uh, Ulysses Owens was on the gig. Um, ben Wolf did it. Nasheed did it. And so, you know, somewhere in that process, eventually Corey did a couple gigs. He did one in Florida. That was the first time we played together and we met. And then we ended up playing together to get again at um, the uh, Aspen Snowmass uh, jazz camp with me and him and, and Christian McBride and Nate. And so from the minute that we met, it was like Corey is someone where I felt almost like I knew him before. It was so familiar. He was so warm and so friendly and such a good musician. And then we ended up playing together after that with Christian Christian Scott. Okay. I mean, I'll ask something on Christian in a bit, but what does LBF stand for? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, that is actually my mother's initials, uh, Linda Buckfields. And, uh, that was the song that I wrote specifically for her. Uh, she's been one of the most important and just encouraging and loving people um, in my life. And she is, she has never wavered um, anytime, even sometimes when I was like, hmm, you know, is this going to work out? Um, she was always there and she always had something encouraging to say. Um, so yeah, I wanted to write something for her for the album. And that is why uh, it's, it's LBF. Okay. Well, I like that song probably the best. I know it's probably not the more popular one, but eh, whatever. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. And you know, when I was when I was thinking about how to put the album together, um, you know, like I was saying earlier, I have a lot of different influences and there are a lot of things that I like. So I wanted to put a range of, of material on the album, but I didn't want it to be jarring. Um, and you know, I didn't want people to get like whiplash from one song to the other and I wanted to have it kind of flow together. Um, and so something that's 
been really encouraging to me is the fact that a lot of people have picked different songs on the album that they like or that's their favorite one, you know? And for me, that's like the best possible outcome. If every person likes something different and not everyone is saying it's just this song or that song, um, then uh, yeah, that is that is exactly uh, the best best possible outcome. Okay. I would give you that, but doesn't that hurt the radio charts? Because normally the songs that do the best, like if it's like, I like song A only, everyone's playing song A, therefore people become more interested in Lawrence Fields. So it's an interesting question because first you have to say, okay, what's the state of radio right now? Okay, fair. You got me on that part, but you get what I mean. (laughs) Yeah, and radio is an important, critically important vessel, right? But at the same time, there are also so many other ways for music to get out, and all of this is happening at the same time. So, yeah, in one sense, to have, you know, a single or a sound that represents the album is cool. Um, But it's also cool that people can kind of find the music how they like, and people come to it in different ways. And some people come to albums through completely different songs just because of the fact that it's so distributed now, right? You could come across a track of someone's album on the web, you could come across it on streaming media, you could come across it on the radio. Um, it could just be on a playlist that chooses random tracks that fit a mood that are playing somewhere. Um, yeah, so I feel like it's, there's still a lot of different entry points and I think that's a good thing. And even at least so far with regards to radio, it's been really interesting to see that different radio stations around the world uh, have picked different tracks to, to feature. And so, I think it just gets back to, you know, music is so diverse and there are a lot of diverse ways to experience it now. And I think that's good because it pulls people in who might not be into to one thing, but might be into something else. Okay. I do agree with you on that. But since you even brought that part up about the radio situation, do people really find your music on the radio? Absolutely. Okay. They absolutely do. I the, mean... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I keep honestly, I think, yeah. Look, that industry has been through a lot and much respect to all the people who are who are toughing it out and doing doing it because there's still, you know, like every different group of people experiences music from a different source. So for some people, right, it's strictly Internet. For other people, they don't do any of this Internet stuff. But when they're driving in their car, they still put the radio station on. And and um, the cool thing is nowadays you can actually track it. So. Nowadays, for example, through Apple Music, um, you can see but when people Apple go to... Mu- Apple Music isn't the radio. That's streaming. Yeah, yeah. See, here's, here's the... different things. Here's the curve that gets there. Okay. Through Apple Music, because they bought this company, Shazam, where people pull out their phones in order to figure out what they're hearing when they're hearing it audibly, um, you can actually see where and when people pulled out their phone to figure out what it was that they were listening to. And I can say that when I look at the data, which again is access to Apple Music because they bought Shazam, um, yes. in every city where there's been radio play, you see these big bursts of people pulling out Shazam to figure out what they're hearing. So in all this, the cities that are playing it, some of the states, you know, Philadelphia, New Orleans, uh, San Antonio, et cetera, as well as cities in other countries, Whenever a song hits the radio, I see this this huge burst of people trying to figure out what it is. And so 
that is for me like direct feedback saying that hey like radio is important you know even with all these other um sort of systems that we have to get music to people when someone chooses to play something on a popular program somewhere people take note and a lot of times they want to figure out what it is that they're listening to so that is that's hard evidence of the fact that it's still um super important and again credit to to everyone who takes their their time uh, in that area okay i tend to be against a lot of public radio especially npr jazz radio stations so it is nice to hear the other side and i've been wrong many times before on the show but my question on that is if they're playing it and they're sesaming it are they coming out and helping and supporting you in general <laughs> well we're about to find out <laughs> oh I, i'm not trying to be low i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it's a fair question it's a fair question and i think yeah the proof will be in the pudding um it'll be interesting to talk to more people since you know this is my debut so this is the first time i've had music out there and had you know radio play and had things out on streaming services and stuff like that so yeah i think it'll be really interesting to talk to people at shows and things like that and see exactly how they they found out um but yeah we we will see <laughs> yeah i mean that's something you got to get back to me on but <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not really your true debut because like you said, you mentioned him before, Mr. Christian Scott. You wrote for him. You got a Grammy nomination for the album, if I'm correct. Yeah, so there were there were a couple albums that were that were Grammy nominated. Oh, um, couple. My mistake. <laughs> oh no, no problem. <laughs> I just you know, <laughs> I don't want a Christian who's who's now uh, Chief Ajua um, or ZN. Yes, yes. Ajua. I'm sorry. Uh, no, it's fine. Uh, you know, I, I know I'm going to have to talk to him about this later, so I just want to make sure I'm getting this straight. <laughs> no, he's, he's honestly, uh, honestly one, one of my best friends, and it's, it's always fun going around about this stuff. But uh, yeah, there there were um, a few albums that were that were Grammy Grammy nominated. A couple of them were studio recordings, and there's also a live album as well. And uh, yeah, you know, I had the chance through him to really be part of the music making process, you know, not just to play, but also to come up with some things, to compose some things for the band, to produce some things. Um, so there are a few different records uh, with things on it that I kind of co-wrote or co-produced or, you know, gave to Christian for those albums. Um, but it is different, you know, a lot of times, first of all, a lot of times people might not even know, right? Because you know, and I, I have been guilty of this at certain times, but, you know, people don't always necessarily read the credits for everything and they see the headline artist name and that's it. Um, so I think it, when you add to that, the fact that when you do your own record, you're really truly expressing your own musical voice. And ideally, when you're playing with other people, you're doing your thing, but you're trying to do the best to complement whatever their vision is too, right? You don't want to override their vision with yours you want to produce something where it's in harmony. Um, and so, yeah, although, you know, there are, there are other things out there with various artists, I really feel like now is the, the fresh start of something completely new. And uh, yeah, that's exciting for me. I still love, <laughs> love the Chief, still enjoy working with them, actually just enjoy hanging out with them. Um, but yeah, despite that, this is still a, a big new step. 
Okay. That's fair. Like I said, I, I don't consider it a debut, but yes, I understand where you're coming from on that. So I actually originally know you from Downbeat because they always have those charts, which I make fun of all the time. <laughs> and I swear for the past three years, if not four years, you've been like on the rising star list. So you've been making a name for yourself. <laughs> well, it's cool. You know, I'm, I'm glad that, that people have been taking note because it's never a guarantee, you know, and a lot of times, um, you know, you could, you could be rising one year and then the next year you're gone. You're not there, you know? Um, so I appreciate the fact, you know, there's a list of journalists in every specific, um, every specific edition of the magazine where they do those polls and they always say, you know, like these are the people who contributed and whatever. So yeah, I'm grateful for the fact that those people continue to listen and that whatever is coming out gets to their ears. And uh, yeah, you know, I I appreciate the love. I make fun of the polls. That's all I'm going to say on yours. <laughs> <laughs> but you said it. Sometimes there are people who are on there and then they're off. And I'm just like, you left the people who should have been off on, but I'm just going to sit back here and be quiet. So, yeah. <laughs> Well, look. Look, I like the fact that, you know, we're having a real talk conversation because that doesn't always happen. And the truth is all this stuff, whatever it is, um, it's not an exact science and it's tricky. That goes for polls, that goes for awards, it goes for things like the Grammys and the Oscars and everything else like that, right? Like, we all have musicians and actors and people like that where we're like, you know, how could this not get nominated? Or how did this get nominated and stuff like that? So I think it's important important to remember that none of this stuff, including the music industry itself, the music industry is not a meritocracy, right? There are lots of people who deserve the shot and never got one, you know? And so, yeah, it's, it's super important to remember that. And it's true. It's not an exact science. It doesn't always reflect everything you want to see. Um, but that's how it's been. And that's kind of the environment that you have to push through to, to, to get your music out there, uh, wherever it is. You know, a perfect timing on that since you mentioned the Grammys and you went to Berkeley. So there's this person from Iceland who sings. Her name starts with an L and she just won a Grammy. <laughs> yes, I know you know who I mean. Uh, who's that? Uh, okay, if you don't know the name, you don't know the name, but is she considered jazz? Oh, you're, oh, you're, you mean, uh, Lafayette? Yep. I Actually, you know what? I'm the wrong person to answer that question. Oh, don't give me that. No, don't give me that. Come on, man. <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> because the the first time that I heard the name was people almost, it was like a second order like effect, right? It was like people were remarking on, on a, the controversy of, you know, is this jazz, is this not, and it's popular. And... You know, like I've seen that a few times before. Um, it it happened with my friend um, Esperanza. Um, it's it's happened with, you know, actually probably Robert Glasper too. Uh, but then also some some younger acts that have come out more recently. So, you know, whenever I see that kind of thing, like I'm interested, but I don't necessarily pay it much mind. So I actually had not and still have not heard 
um, any of Lofty's music, but I'm, I'm curious just because there's a controversy. Okay, <laughs> fine. That, You're dodging that in a very yeah. skilled way. <laughs> so look, once once I hear something, uh, then I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> okay. I just believe in the words of the great Paul McCartney. Let them in. <laughs> okay, if they're bringing attention to it and people say it's jazz, yes, play it. It's jazz. Welcome. Andre 3000, you're a jazz artist now. Congratulations. Come on in. Well, and, and also, genre is hard. It's tricky. You know, when you try to fit music that crosses boundaries into a strict set of categories, which again, goes back to what we were talking about earlier, right? For all these awards and polls and things like that, you have to categorize things so that you can let people vote on them or so that you can stratify them in a way that you say, okay, this is on the left, this is on the right. And I think it's just hard to do that because a lot of great music doesn't fit into a category. And increasingly, especially now, people are just playing whatever they like and kind of letting the chips fall where they may because, again, going back to all these channels to release music and stuff like that, you might not be going through the typical industry structure, you know? And even if we go way back decades, there's still great artists where it's like, well, what genre is this music? Like Stevie Wonder, if you had to classify every song that he puts out, you know, people call it pop because it's popular. But the truth is he was combining all kinds of different styles of music and it changed from song to song. So I think, um, yeah, it's one of those things. It's just hard to put um, any of this, any of this stuff into a category at all. <laughs> Okay, I mean, I just want more people to listen to the music. So if that's going to bring them over, cool. But I get you on the whole Stevie Wonder thing. Well, and I think it's important to realize that you can you can commemorate a tradition without being scared of what else happens around it. Meaning that, like, we still know and celebrate all the things that jazz has been and where it came from. Um, so, you know, we, we're here because of, you know, Louis Armstrong and, and Duke Ellington and all these people like that. And we can, we can be really firm about saying, listen, this is the tradition. This is what it is. But without we have that category ready. We have from traditional to experimental. So that's what I'm saying. Why can't we just let these people in and then we don't have to worry about selling out Blue Note because Blue well, Note doesn't hold that many people compared to, you know, giant stadium. Mm -hmm. Well, and this is what I'm saying, right? We can both put a stake down and say this is what the tradition is and was without being scared of all the different places that people go with it and the ways that they use it, you know? And I think in some sense, that is the history of music, right? Like we would not have list if... Bach was the only acceptable way to play music, you know, <laughs> and so on for, for African-American music as well, right? There are all these different things that are that are folded in in a way that it's hard to say where one starts and the other ends. So, yeah, I think we can do both, and I think we should do both. And I think you're, you're right about that, that we should not try to gatekeep. We should be clear about what the tradition is, but we should be inclusive. Okay. Well, you're a little younger than me, I believe, but... In your experience, has jazz been? Have you have you uh, have you had any problems with gatekeepers on any level? Not really, 
because uh, it might happen though. <laughs> you know, I feel like um, I've always kind of had a balance of, of different music that I've been a part of. So I played in some situations that were really traditional. I played in other situations that were definitely not. Um, and so I think um, I've always had one foot in in different places at different times. Um, and in some sense, that is why um, it, it all sort of goes into your musical identity. So my musical identity is very rooted in tradition, but it also incorporates a bunch of, it, of other things. However, moving forward, once you put a record out, I think people like to start immediately defining what type of artist you are and what your sound is. And I think if you start to put out other things that are not necessarily congruent with that sound, then sometimes people do gatekeep. So to this point, it's not something I've had to deal with, but it could definitely happen in the future. Um, but I think, hey, you just got to do what you do. You know, there are a lot of artists, including ones that are almost universally acclaimed, including people like John Coltrane, right? Where when they went a different direction, they got critically panned. People were like, you know, what is this? What's going on? But years later down the road, it ended up being a crucial part of their identity, right? When you think about them, you think about those things that they had to step out and do, even though everyone was confused. And so that is not something that I'm afraid of. Um, it's something I almost kind of embrace because I feel like if people are trying to figure it out, then you're probably taking the time and having enough courage to do something that's, that's out of the ordinary. Okay. Like I said, this is your experience. So I can't argue with you on a lot of these points, man. But I do like your mindset of it. You're very positive. Well, thanks. <laughs> no, that's good. I, there's some people who release it and they're more nervous the whole time. And they're just like, well, I hope it does well. I hope I break even and all this stuff. <laughs> well, and that's true, right? Like, we all have to eat. And that's the crucial part of this that doesn't get talked about a lot is it can actually be a big effort to put together what you need to sustain a career. And we're so used to sustaining the image of success that a lot of times, um, like we're not honest about it. We don't talk about it because no one wants to discuss those things. Everyone wants to say, hey, you know, I got featured here. I won this award. I did this. You know, and so like we need to be honest about the fact that the music industry has gone through a very difficult time and everyone who's out here working is probably putting a, a lot of um, a lot of effort in to do that. Um, but if you're focused on being held back by the worst of the conditions around you, you'll never be able to do what it is that you came to do. And I think if you give into being negative and basically just fighting the industry at every turn, um, it's almost like shackles. It's like weight. It's like you're carrying this thing around that affects everything you do. And at some point, I think you have to kind of throw it off and go for broke and, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. So I don't fault anyone for being practical. I also have to be practical about certain things, uh, but it's, it's got to be a balance. Okay. And you know, they still make fun of John Coltrane on the internet for that transition. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like some of them are really fun. There's some clever people out there. I got to give them that. Yeah. The memers. Yes. <laughs> 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 
Okay. So, Lawrence, another question I need to ask you. Berkeley, your experience there, do you think it helped you? Do you think it hurt you? Do you think it was worth it? Do you think it was overpriced? Be honest. <laughs> uh, help, absolutely. Uh, there aren't, well, first of all, if we talk about like what that time of my life was like, uh, I, I didn't actually understand at that point, but I get it now how a lot of people get into this music. And, uh, you know, like we talk a lot about, about talent and things like that. And I think, you know, there are some people who just have gifts from, you know, younger ages, but those gifts are almost always nurtured. Number one. And number two, there, there are a lot of people who just worked hard and came up through the right system. Right. So when I talk about that, I'm talking about people having teachers from when they were young, not just in some cases to learn their instrument, but also to point them in specific directions. Uh, a lot of people have mentors or teachers who are able to connect them with certain people in their local community that ended up being important for them. And, you know, there's a whole system of how a lot of people get here. There are jazz camps, there are performing arts high schools, there are, you know, special programs and things like that in certain states, areas of the country or the world that basically just help young people be exposed to great musicians who can mentor them. And so I didn't come up through any of this. <laughs> I was I was studying computer science first. I was doing I was on a completely different track. Well, where and were so, you studying that before? This is at Washington University in St. Louis. Um, so I didn't I didn't know that this was a thing. And uh, when I got to Berkeley, that was the first time I was actually around a lot of people who come through these things. You know, who had. had had mentors, had a lot of lessons. We went to this jazz camp and that jazz camp and this performing arts high school. And, you know, they had an opportunity to meet, you know, this famous jazz musician. And, and I was like, wow, you know, there, there are a lot of people who are really good at a young age. And I knew that I needed to make progress quickly. Just first of all, just to start and catch up um, with what all these people had been through to this point. So number one, school is really crucial for that, for getting a time to be around people who are great and saying, okay, let me get this together because I, I see all the work that these other people have put in. Um, second, there are not a lot of schools like that. You know, Berkeley is a place where you can walk through the hallways and hear everything. You know, like like what we were talking about earlier, right? It was not just, okay, there's classical and, and there's jazz and that's it. It was like, you know, you pass an ensemble room, you hear, you know, R&B over here, you hear gospel over here, you hear progressive rock music over here, there's blues here, there's bluegrass there, there's pop music here, there are people in their recording studio doing all this stuff. And uh, for me, that that was amazing. It perfectly fit, like, who I feel like I am as a musician. And so to be able to play in lots of different situations where, you know, you go have a jam session and it might be... <laughs> You know, two gospel people, a jazz person, you know, a hip hop guy and, a, and an R&B girl or whatever. And all these people just get together and on the in the moment, on the spot, figure out how to make all this work together. Um, that was it was a lot of fun. And I don't think there's probably anywhere else um, at that kind of collegiate level where you can really do that. Um, it is very expensive. I would not have been able to to afford it were it not for scholarships. Um, and 
I think that is an increasing consideration now, given the fact that, like we said earlier, the state that the music industry is in, um, it can make earning very difficult. And so I think that balance is a little bit off in general, um, not just for specific schools, but also for all of higher education right now. Um, this is something where when you when you know uh, talk to a lot of people from other countries, they're kind of confused about it because making education affordable is a priority in most of the developed world. Um, and we are kind of leading in the expense of education, which is not necessarily reimbursed for quite some years after you get out and you get into your career. So yeah, that is a whole mixed bag. Uh, but I will say that putting money considerations aside, you know, if you do have a way to get to a place like that, to be around that many people who are all focused on one thing, uh, there's really no, no substitute for it. Uh, in the world. Okay. Uh, before I even say anything on that part, I, what made you actually want to go from computer science to music? Like, what was the process? Were your parents aborted or were they just like, Ew. I was bored, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, my, my dad kind of had a few tracks um, that he thought would be good for me to be on. You know, you could be a doctor, you could be a lawyer, you could be an engineer. Um, and I did really like computers, um, even just as a hobby, tinkering around and programming and building things and stuff like that. It was always fun for me. But once I got a taste of what this whole music community is like and how much fun it is, number one, before you even get out in front of people, just like exploring, like figuring new things out and listening to stuff that you love and then figuring out pieces of it that allow you to reproduce those same feelings yourself. That is so much fun. Then you get out into, you know, playing for audiences and the whole, uh, the mutual feedback, right? Like you play things that push the audience and the audience gives you feedback that pushes you and you can go somewhere together. Like that's so much fun. And these are layers that you don't necessarily have when you're sitting in front of a computer screen writing lines of code. And then there's the social aspect of it as well, you know? So, once I got a taste of all those things, I was literally coming back to work, you know, with headphones on, listening to music all day while I was programming and then going out at night to experience all these other things while playing. And I was like, something's got to get, you know, I'm, I'm bored at work. You know, I really enjoy this, but um, sitting at the computer is not necessarily my biggest passion in life. It's something I enjoy, but compared to this, it's not the same. So I kind of made a bet with myself and I said, I'm going to practice really hard. I'm going to learn as much as I can. If I can get some kind of a scholarship to music school, then I will leave, I'll quit my job and I'll go. And uh, that was, again, I was, I had started college a couple of years early, so I was young. I was in a secure job. Things were good, um, but I just felt drawn. And so I really worked really hard for, you know, year, year and a half. Um, I ended up driving to Chicago with my dad. Uh, Berkeley has this tour that they call the World, World Scholarship Tour, where they go out to places. Instead of having people come all the way to, to them, they kind of go to you. So they were making a stop in Chicago. We went there. Uh, yeah, I ended up auditioning and uh, got a letter in the mail that they were giving me um uh, a partial scholarship at that time, which ended up becoming full later. And uh, yeah, 
that was it. I quit my job. I moved to Boston and I, I started a, a whole new life. Okay, that story was probably the best part of this whole interview to me. <laughs> but that's my one of my problems with a lot of these conservatories and stuff. You price out a lot of the talent and then people already are set in their life. Like if they have a wife or they have a kid or something, they're not going to just quit their job and go into the conservatory. And for you, it clearly paid off because, dude, you're playing with a lot of the top artists right now. So how many people are we not given that opportunity to because they just look at the price on the website and just be like, yeah, I can't afford this. Let me just go to my local state school. It's tricky. And I will say, as far as Berkeley, um, they give out more scholarships than any school that I know. You know, they are really invested in trying to make sure that talented people have an opportunity to go there. However, not everyone's going to be able to get a scholarship. And you're absolutely right. Like for a lot of people, especially now, again, as these things get out of balance, meaning like the investment that you make to study versus what you're getting back from the industry. Um, yeah, it's more on balance now than it's ever been. And it was never easy, but now it's, it's pretty crazy. So yeah, it's hard. I think we have to continue to make sure that we have ways for people who might be interested or talented to learn. But the flip side of that is that it's now easier to learn than it's ever been. Uh, there's so many resources out there, there now for anyone learning to play anything that just didn't exist when a lot of us were starting, you know, like to have the luxury of how do I play this? And then going to type that into Google <laughs> and having 50 videos or different kinds of content or whatever, you know, this is a new thing. So I think you're increasingly seeing that people from around the world are able to learn styles of music that they didn't grow up around uh, because of what they're exposed to. However, there's never going to be any substitute for the networking that you get. And I can directly trace a lot of gigs that I've had to people that I met, like while I was at school through certain connections and things like that. So there are different ways to do it. But again, I really hope that just in America in general, like we take a look at this balance and try to push it back in favor of, of making education affordable because it's so important. Okay, that's a whole other thing. You said education as a whole or just in jazz? Yeah, education. I mean, look. Because in the whole, you got to change a lot of stuff. And uh, Yeah, like from cutting a lot of these salaries and getting rid of a lot of these tenure professors that don't even teach. Well, or just figuring out how to properly subsidize education in your in your country, right? Like people are getting paid to teach and they should be all over the world. However, in in a number of other, you know, countries, like the government has realized that putting money into the system that gets people educated helps the country, you know, like the more resources that are available to lower the costs for people who want to study and go to higher education, your country ends up benefiting it because you end up having more people who are, you know, sort of like equipped to pursue whatever it is that they want to pursue. So I think that as a nation, this is something we need to take a hard look at because this is not something that people are so worried about. Like, you know, I have friends from Germany, the cost 
of a higher education in Germany versus here, there's no comparison. It's not that they're not paying professors or something like that. It's that I mean all this stuff is subsidized. I have right? a lot of guests that came on from Europe and everything. That is true. It's more subsidized, but they're not making the American professor salaries. Right. They're not making that much mm-hmm. more. Their tax rate is also higher over there in Europe. Right. Yeah. Well, it's, and, and it should be, right? Like, it, the money has to come from somewhere. But that's the, point the problem. Is, the money has to come from somewhere. That's why I'm yeah. like, that's a different conversation <laughs> altogether. <laughs> but, the, but the point is, if you're, if you're not willing to invest as a country, right, in making sure that people have the resources that they need to pursue what they want to do, you are going to feel that one way or the other. And so there's more effort being put into that, far more effort in a lot of places in Europe than, than there is in the States. Um, despite the States having the reputation for having all these prestigious institutions. And that is something that I do believe we absolutely need to correct. Uh, there needs to be more of a push in that direction coming from the top um, rather than just coming from the individual pockets of people who are getting ready to, to study. Okay. Like I said, for that to change, in my opinion, you have to change a lot of stuff at the deeper levels of the economics change. And yeah, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> so out of all the people you played with, who has given you the most wow moment? I'm just curious. Starstruck, is... like blew your mind away. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I'll say there's certain people where when you play with them, the feeling of playing with them is completely different from what you may have even heard, like on a record or whatever, you know, like there's some people where you're like, wow, this is really great. But there are other people where it's like, wow, like the way this feels is something that I haven't experienced before playing with someone, all the other people that I play with who play this instrument. And so there are a couple of people who are like that. Um, I think the first, first one for me was, was Jeff Tan Watts. Um, the feeling of playing with him, it's crazy. You know, the amount of propulsion and and power comes out of, of his drums in a way that's not just volume, but it literally almost carries the entire band. And um, that is just something it's hard to explain in words, but you feel it so immediately the minute that you start playing with him and he plays the downbeat. Um, so... Yeah, I think that was the first time I really had that experience where I was like, I've never felt this before, you know, and I've played with drummers before, but this is something else. Uh, so, yeah, that that is something I'll, I'll never forget. That was really the first real, you know, sort of uh, top level band that I played in was Tane's band. And yeah, you can feel it immediately. Uh, another musician like that is, is Christian McBride. Um, same thing. His beat, his pulse. Like the second you start playing with him, you realize that he could carry the time of the song even with no drums, right? Just as a bassist alone, <laughs> he has so much strength and such precision in addition to all the soul that he has and the technique that it really can carry a band. And that was a that was a new experience, but it was really cool. And I know there's a long lineage, you know, where he gets that from through people like Ray Brown and things like that. So, and likewise with Tang coming through Elvin. So it's cool that that kind of unique feeling has been passed on to people who are, 
who are still with us today. And uh, yeah, I would also say that about Joe Lovano as well. And really, Nick, I mean, I'm going to list a lot of people. <laughs> but like when Nicholas Payton takes takes his trumpet out and plays a couple notes, he transports the band and the audience to another place. And you really have no idea what he's going to do, but it's always a journey. And likewise, with Joe, um, Joe just warming up in the dressing room is such a big ground sound. Um, I think just on that basis alone, you know, you can put him on stage with someone who just plays a couple notes. And the, the second that Joe plays his first note, the entire room is drawn in. Uh, so I'd say like all four of those musicians have a really special thing. And it's not just an admiration of like, wow, they're technically able to do this or they can pull this off on their instrument, but it's the way that they make everything else around them feel when they play. Okay. So that would be your dream band for the most part. <laughs> well, look, bands are a tricky thing. That's the whole discussion. Combo. Because okay, combo. Would you have well, look, Jeff as the drummer, Christian as the bass player? You on well, the look, keys? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sure it'd be fun. It'd be great. However, bands are a completely different thing. Um, Ooh, okay. We we all know all-star records that have been put together. That have been doo-doo? Yes. And <laughs> no, it will not to say that they're bad. You still enjoy them. But the sound of a band is not always those types of players. Sometimes it's a combination of a player like that with a player who just fills a certain role particularly well. Um, and fantastic musicians are not always of that variety, right? Or they're just carrying everyone all by themselves. But sometimes it's just people who, for whatever reason, have a certain chemistry and gel. So, yeah, I'm sure if you put all those people together, it'd be amazing. Uh, but if you look at how people pick their bands, a lot of people don't pick their bands that way. And, and I think there's probably good reason for that, too. Do you think it's more of an ego thing? Do you think it's a time and finance thing? Or do you think it's just what? So like with everyone that I named, um, definitely not the ego thing because they're all like, if you just meet them in person, you know, they come across as, as regular people, you know, like you can talk to Joe. I've seen Joe have all kinds of conversations with people in different places. I've seen Tane talk to, you know, just different people, maybe someone who was just, just chilling at the bar at the end of the night. And um, they're, they're always very warm. They bring people in. But yeah, I think when you put together a band, you're really looking at whose sounds combine to make the sound of the band and not necessarily just the sound of a, a bunch of individual people playing together. And I think those are two different things. And so I think the considerations for what make that, there's some kind of magic that happens and it's not necessarily always the the all-star package. Now that part I do agree of, even though I would still like to see that group together. If they could have <laughs> it for one night, I don't know where, <laughs> but yes. But I have heard some all-star bands where I was greatly disappointed. And I don't know if it was the producer's fault for not coming up with the charts that fit best for them or what, but yeah. Well, and the thing is, it doesn't necessarily have to be zero or a hundred, right? It's not like it's bad or it's amazing. You could go see the concert and it was great. However, like a band that has a lasting sound is something you have to build from specific ingredients. And uh, yeah, sometimes it's not always the people you would expect, but they're the people who fit perfectly to realize that vision. And 
Yeah, it's not. It's never going to be the same. It's just taking a bunch of great musicians and throwing them together to do something. Um, for some reason, certain people just click in a certain way that makes magic, and it's really hard to explain, but it's definitely true. That I also can't disagree with you on. So the people are going to get a very boring episode from us in terms of me. <laughs> I see you like to spice things up. And no, I'm not even trying to spice things up. I'm just trying to see where you're going from. <laughs> Coming from. Trust me, there's like only one guest when they came on and I was just like hammering because I'm like, dude, you talk so much. You know what? <laughs> and I, there are people who came on the show and just completely less like wiped me on the ground. Just like, damn. <laughs> Defeat. Yes. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Two more questions and then I'll let you go, sir. Okay. Yeah, sure. What is something people misunderstand about the jazz world, especially coming from a computer science background? Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple of things. One, everything that's good comes out of something else that was good. And the people who tend to be the best at it are people who spent a lot of time digging up those things. And I think, again, there's this kind of huge myth around talent where people just come out and they're just, they just have it. They just got it. And that's it. You know, um, when I hang around people, including a lot of the people that I just mentioned, one of the things that's common to all of them is like how much music they know and like deeply know how much stuff they sat and studied, all of that stuff comes into their playing. And it's not just that they were born talented and ascended and that was it. So I think that is probably one of the most common misunderstandings um, that people just, they don't just come out like this. Um, but all of that stuff comes from a specific place and the work that gets put in to do that is what ends up separating people. There are lots of people who are talented or ahead of their peers at a young age or whatever. But uh, those people, a lot of times, end up being passed up by people who are willing to put in all of this work. Uh, and that's something I wish more people knew, because we don't usually write about that. We usually say, yeah, what's the biography? You know, she was born in, you know, Michigan and she did this and she went to school. And then her first album and, and then, you know, the Grammys and then she played with such and such. It's like, yeah, but what happened in the middle? Like, where is the struggle? How did they get there? You know, what did she have to go through? to actually achieve this level. And that's far more interesting to me because I want to keep getting better and better. I want to grow, you know, there's certain goals I want to reach and learning about that process is how I learned to get there. So yeah, I wish we would talk a little less about this person is, you know, was born with magical abilities and a little more about like, these are the things they had to go through to get to to where they got. Uh, but Lawrence, uh in defense of those people, you know, you kind of did just say, I'm going to major in music, and now you're playing with top artists. <laughs> but, I'm just saying. <laughs> but there are people who can put in all the work they wish, and they're never going to be able to play with, you know, Warren Wolf. But it's because we don't always have the opportunity to talk about the hours and hours and hours and hours and hours that you have to put in or the sacrifice. You know, like so many times when my friends were out partying, and I was in the practice room at one in the morning with the record on trying to learn something so I could catch up, you know? And that's why I mentioned that earlier to say that like when I got to Berkeley, I knew that I was behind. I knew that, 
you know, like I had certain things that allowed me to get there, but there was a lot more work to be done. And so that is why night after night, I was in the practice room late, you know, like when the practice rooms closed and you see who's still there at the end, that's how you know who's really serious. And it's a short list of people who would be there after everyone else. And you know, those were the people who really wanted it. So I hope that we start to tell those stories too, and not just the ones about accomplishments and, and things like that. The next question I had to ask, and you can't dodge this, okay? Okay. This is say your next album. I am giving you unlimited money. And you had to choose only between two people on drums. Jeff Watt or Brian Blade? Who are you choosing? <laughs> Hold on, man. That's not fair. <laughs> oh, no. Don't do that. <laughs> Probably both. <laughs> oh, boo. Okay, so Lawrence, fine. Can you tell the people where to find your album, <laughs> your website, they, and all that other stuff? <laughs> <laughs> can they can they play simultaneously? Can we do a two-drummer album? <laughs> boo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will say just quickly, though, in all seriousness, I enjoy writing for different people. Um, so we'll probably write different music for both of them. But yeah, impossible to pick. Uh, well, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, my new album to the surface is out just over a week. Um, you can find it through my website, lawrencefields.com. You can find it on Amazon and all sorts of other places. Um, I'm out here on Instagram, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, all the usual social media. Um, so, yeah, uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks for to you for having me on. And, uh, yeah, onward and, and upward from here. Well, the honor is mine. So thank you, Lawrence, for coming on. And everyone, this is Neander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.